Let's now turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We'll read the first 20 verses. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." connection with our uh, scripture reading, we also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 32. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised through us. And further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, we heard our Lord Jesus say, let your light shine. And uh, that's a positive command. We ought not to be thrown by the word let. It doesn't mean uh, allow it to happen, but... Uh, this is a, an imperative. It's a command to be active, to be intentional about shining in this dark world. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, you are light 
in the Lord, walk as children of light. Walk in the light of the Lord. Walk in the paths of the Lord. We heard that resolve and exhortation from Isaiah chapter uh, 2. And in all these instances, in Matthew uh, 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, also in Isaiah 2, uh, the subject is that of conduct or, or behavior. And uh, that's important. When we hear this passage, this calling to let our light shine before men. Now, that's certainly not uh, in conflict with the call to our personal uh, witness or testimony with words about God, words about the gospel. But the emphasis in Matthew 5 clearly is on deeds. It's on practices that show a life, that, that show a character that stands in sharp contrast to the darkness of this world in sin, a world without God. In other words, it's clearly about good works. Jesus is uh, unmistakable. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, good works is the subject of uh, Lord's Day 32. Uh, a Lord's Day that explains the, the biblical answer to this question. Why uh, should we do good works? And we'll see from the summary of many scriptural arguments that indeed there are uh, very good reasons why Christians should do good works. That's basically our theme uh, for this evening. We have good reasons for doing good works, and we begin by seeing that uh, all these reasons are rooted in Christ's work. They're rooted in Christ's work in us. Uh, there's a sense in which we might say properly, biblically, that good works are all grace works. They're the expressions of grace. They're the result of grace. They're empowered by grace. There is no such thing as good works without grace. That's clear from uh, the Bible's description of good works. They proceed from faith. They're done according to God's will, according to His Word, not our own ideas, and for His glory. No one but a Christian can perform any good works whatsoever. Good works, then, are the fruit and the evidence and the expression, actually, of God's work, God's grace at work in the lives of people. And so it's very important that we understand how good works fit in with salvation by grace alone, uh, without any merit. That's really the question that uh, this Lord's Day begins with. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of our own, that's settled, that's clear, and so therefore the question, why then should we do good works? And the answer, first of all, roots these good works in the grace of God in Christ. Now there is a proper sense and a biblical sense in which we must uh, understand and we must say that the works of the law are in utter contrast to grace. There is a sense in which we say that the works of the law are enemies to grace. When it comes to the basis for election, works have nothing to do with it. We heard last week that uh, Paul says that there is, even to this day, a remnant of Israel according to the election of grace. 
And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. It is not by works. I should get that, that, that language clear here from Romans chapter 9. If by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace because other work, otherwise work is no longer work. There's an, there's an utter contrast between grace and works. In this passage, in connection with, with God's election, it has nothing to do with works. And we must say the same thing uh, with respect to the answer to the question, how can sinful man be right with God? And the Bible's answer to that, it is uh, not to him who works, but to him who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that righteousness is imputed. Acceptance with God, a standing before Him as just or justified is not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone. So with respect to election, with respect to justification, there is an utter absolute contrast between grace and works. Not by works which we have done, Paul says in Titus chapter 3, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. But here there is an error or a danger that could creep in. In view of this utter contrast between grace and works, the danger is this. That whenever we hear an emphasis upon good works we might think that this somehow undermines grace, that it somehow takes away from grace. And every time we hear the imperatives of God's Word proclaimed to God's people, oh, the boogeyman of legalism is raised. As if the only function of God's law in the life of a Christian is to expose sin and show the need for Christ. That would be a grave error. An error that fails to see uh, the grace of God that is actually manifested and expressed in good works. Good works and grace are at enmity. They're opposites with respect to election, with respect to justification. But they are not in opposition, period, without further consideration. For one thing, good works are good. Now, you might think, well, that's obvious. But it's important that we appreciate the fact that good works are always uh, presented in Scripture as good. Good works are commanded. Good works are commended. In other words, they're they're uh, they're praised. The Bible speaks very highly of good works. In fact, I would challenge you to find one passage in the Bible where the phrase "good works." is used in a negative or bad way. Now here we have the distinction between the way the Bible speaks of works or the works of the law. Yeah, the Bible speaks of those things in a negative way in contrast to grace, but the phrase good works itself is always presented in a positive light as something that is good and that Christians are called to do with no suggestion that good works are somehow opposed to grace. Good works are by grace, without merit. 
Now, in this connection, we, we, uh, we must distinguish between two different kinds of grace, we might say. Grace that is for us or toward us. And here, indeed, we may uh, speak of the grace of election and the grace of justification and the forgiveness of sins and the grace of adoption. This is the grace of God for us. But we can distinguish that from the grace of God in us. The grace of God that is manifested not only in what He does for us or towards us, but what He does in us by His Spirit. The grace of regeneration, renewing our hearts and lives. The grace of sanctification, progressive conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. These are God's works. They're gracious works. And they're not somehow at odds with His grace without merit whatsoever. In fact, where the one is, that is where God's grace toward us and for us is truly known, there you also have the other. To put it in other words, to put it in the language of our confession, it's impossible to be in Christ without receiving both kinds of grace. Right? That's the biblical answer to the objection. Doesn't the doctrine of justification make men careless and profane? Well, no, for it is impossible for those who are engrafted into Christ by true faith not to produce the fruits of righteousness. Union with Christ brings justification indeed, but it also results in sanctification. Or to again, to look more carefully at the language of our, of our confession before us tonight, why should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, is also renewing us by His Spirit into His image. There is the ongoing gracious work of God, the work of Christ in us, renewing not simply something that is past, but something that is ongoing. The outward man perishes, Paul says, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. When the Word of God quickens you, when it brings you to delight in the Gospel, when it motivates you to love God, well, that's grace. That's the grace of Christ through His Spirit at work in us. And that's the explanation for any good works. They're rooted in the work of Christ. Good works are the expression of renewed character. We read the Beatitudes, that beautiful description of uh, a character that is being shaped and transformed by the work of God's Spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness those who are meek, those who are merciful, those who are peacemakers. Brothers and sisters, these are not the descriptions of any re unregenerate person. The natural man cannot produce any of these qualities. These are characteristics of members of the kingdom of God. Characteristics that are worked by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. In fact, they're really foundational. They're fundamental. There's a, they're the kinds of things that we really that we really want to, to look for when we, when we wonder if the Christian testimony is, is taking 
root in the hearts of others. You know, when people seek uh, interest in joining the church or taking a membership class, I'm, I'm happy to hear of young men that are eager to learn about Reformed doctrine. But you know, there's a possibility of being interested in Reformed doctrine as a hobby, and people can become fascinated with teachings. But what is the most lovely thing to see and the most encouraging thing to see is a kind of hunger and thirst after righteousness. A kind of humility that, that has recognized the vastness and the wonder of this gospel message. And a kind of poverty of spirit that lacks self-confidence but is really careful to get it right and is teachable. Has a sense of sin. Those are the characteristics that, characteristics that God produces by His Spirit. And it's this character then that comes to expression in in conduct, that, that grace empowers. The Beatitudes describe the character that grace produces, and it comes to expression in conduct that grace empowers. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, well, they will. They will, in fact, exhibit a, a kind of righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because it's not just concerned with external things. It's concerned with the heart of things. And when people are merciful, that will incline them to deeds of mercy. And when people are peacemakers, it's not simply because they've, they've managed certain techniques of bringing people together. It's because they are peaceable. And they exhibit that wisdom uh, that is from above, which is first pure and then peaceable. So there's a close connection between the character that Jesus describes and the evidence of that in one's life that might result in persecution, but it's described in terms of good works. But it's all of grace. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Whatever good works we produce, God has worked them in us. So good works are rooted in Christ's work in us. That's not simply one reason among many. That's the kind of reason that is behind, underneath, that has to be understood uh, with all these other specific reasons that are enumerated here. Reasons in relation to God. Christ renews us so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God. Good works are motivated by gratitude. Uh, David, in Psalm 116, he expresses this, this kind of uh, a motivation when he says, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I'll take up the cup of salvation, call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of His people. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I love the Lord because He heard my voice and my supplication. In other words, the knowledge and experience of God's grace and mercy is what motivates good works. Paul appeals to such motivation in Romans chapter 12 when he says, I, I beseech you, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Well, this is something that's not hard to understand, is it? 
I trust you all understand the simple logic of that natural response when something, someone does something really good for us and we're thankful. And we might say something like, how can I show my thankfulness to you? How can I express my gratitude? Well, it's a natural uh, response, even to temporal and uh, gifts and kindnesses that are shown to us by others. How much more than when God has delivered our souls from death, our eyes from tears, our feet from falling. He's redeemed our life from destruction, crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. It's not hard to understand how we should do good works motivated by thankfulness. Lord, how can we honor you? What can I do for you? This is also why the commands of Christian living must always be grounded in what God has done. You see, emphasizing the, the commands and the imperatives of Scripture uh, become legalistic when they're uprooted from these motivations, uprooted from the indicatives of what God has done in grace. And you'll never find that in the Bible. They're always joined together. In Titus chapter uh, chapter 3, we, we hear one of those faithful sayings where uh, Paul says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. And we might think, that the faithful saying is this statement, those who have believed in God must be careful to maintain good works. Well, it's true that those who have believed in God must be careful to maintain good works, but Paul here clearly is referring to uh, the things that were spoken before concerning sin, that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the renewing, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, so that those who have believed should be careful to maintain good works. You constantly affirm the doctrines of sin and grace, justification, the mercy of God. And the result will be also the obvious corollary and conclusion that we ought to be careful to maintain good works in response to such grace. Good works are motivated by gratitude to God. Good works bring praise to God and that he may be praised uh, through us. Jesus joins these things closely together in chapter uh, 5 or 16, where he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, how does that work? How do good works bring glory and praise to God? Again, there are a number of ways, of ways that we might uh, might enumerate. It works uh, when people, and I'm thinking here of perhaps unbelievers, first of all, despite themselves, 
despite their prejudice against Christians, are made to see that you are different. When Christians show humility and mercy, when they exhibit love for peace and meekness, when they, when they show even love for enemies, people are confronted with something that bears testimony to God's grace and God's work. You know, that's how uh, unbelieving spouses may even be one for Christ. You know, Peter talks about that in the case of a of an unbelieving husband who might be won, not by by the wife's preaching or nagging or instruction. Well, there's a place for a word in season, no doubt, but rather by her pure conduct and reverence. The result may be that the husband is won by the power of this testimony of the reality of grace at work, and that would certainly glorify God. Or when you gladly praise God for the grace that you see at work in others, so that you don't envy them, so that you don't uh, uh, somehow uh, become critical as you're confronted with uh, the reality of grace at work in others, but you thank God for it because you recognize the source. You know, it's been mentioned before, but that truly was one of the, the blessings and the joys of Synod. And I heard even the testimony of a, of a, of a young man, a, a seminary student, who was not a minister, but who attended, and who was a participant and an observer in the committee meetings and in the plenary sessions. And uh, uh, it was reported to another colleague of mine who mentioned it publicly that this young man said, you guys really love each other, don't you? Because he observed uh, the reality of, of grace at work in the way... These brothers dwell together in unity, despite differences, despite some vigorous debate. The fact that there was a brotherly spirit and expressions of that made another seminary seminarian say, you know, I was wondering about serving in the URC, but after this synod, I'm really excited and eager to be a minister in the URC. Now, why should that make us happy? Because that's a testimony of the Holy Spirit at work in our federation. And we need to recognize it for what it is and give God the glory for it. And we ought to recognize God's grace at others, in others and be thankful for it. Or when God indeed uses Christian examples, and I probably already mentioned this, uh, to win others for Christ. God is glorified. So we can look at the same thing from the perspective of, in relation to God, God is glorified and we can also look at it in terms of the great benefit of good works to others. By this, my Father is glorified, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit. So there are reasons with respect to God. There are reasons in relation to others. Uh, good works do good. They do good to others. Jesus went about doing good. As you have opportunity, Paul says, do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith, because good works actually benefit others. Remember how Jesus describes the day of judgment when the sheep and the goats are gathered uh, before him, and he, and he says to the sheep, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. These expressions of kindness and love, which do good to others, they meet real needs. 
the Lord Jesus Christ treasures and values them as, as done to himself. I already mentioned Titus chapter, chapter three, but, uh, as we move on through this chapter, uh, Paul also says, let our people also learn to maintain good works, uh, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Good works there are, are defined in terms of, of meeting needs. There are so many ways in this is, in which this is done among the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 10, uh, Paul's description of these godly widows who are to be admitted into the number, whatever that refers to. But the way they're described is important when he says they are to be well reported for good works. What does that mean? Well, he goes on to describe it. If she has brought up children, Oh yes, bringing up children in the ways of God is a good work, a very valuable, very, very important thing. So again, we, when we think of good works, a passage like this doesn't lead us to see some kind of uh, public extra uh, works that are recognized and congratulated by others as if they consist only in such things. They pertain to very ordinary things. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, shown hospitality, if she has washed the saints' feet, engaged in humble service, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. That's a description of good works. Very practical, down to earth, so important. So many different ways in which we can care for one another. I'm always happy to hear of retired uh, couples or others that, that visit the widows and elderly pop into Emmanuel home and have uh, habits of picking out someone who might be lonely and spending some time with them. That's important. That that can relieve also uh, something of the burden of of the of ministers and uh, and elders and deacons. Yes, they have a calling also to visit uh, the widows, but it's not simply the the calling of office. This is pure religion and undefiled before God that we visit widows and orphans in their need and keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And, uh, the matter of addressing a loneliness is simply not a ministerial task. And it's wonderful to hear these things being carried out among God's people. I looked at those uh, pamphlets in the back, uh, these, uh, these cards that ARPA has produced to alert our neighbors about this and. Uh, Approaching, increasing practice of assisted suicide, even to the point that next year in March, uh, that will extend also to the mentally ill. And here's an opportunity for us to seek to do good. Maybe it might be a good idea for some of the young people to consider pairing up and uh, grabbing a bunch of these so they don't just sit here for weeks and weeks until they're thrown away, but uh, that these cards are actually distributed among our neighborhoods and our, by our homes. If you need to get motivated, read the article in the latest Christian Renewal about this movement, what it actually means for the increase of assisted suicide, how people are pressured or secretly coerced in a way that's really frightening, and how people in their vulnerability, struggling with depression, in a system that wants to preserve its budget, and encourage people to check out, to be motivated. Such activities may save lives. There's so many different ways 
If God blesses your witness, if God blesses our, our testimony as a church, as individuals and as a congregation, and uh, uh, brings people among us who are called out of this dark world, uh, think of all the work that that involves. Think of all the mentoring opportunities that opens up. Because people who are converted from this world sometimes need help in some very basic things like learning what it means to be a godly husband or a godly father or a mom. How do we look after kids? And those with maturity and experience can be of great help. That involves conversations. That involves hospitality. That involves uh, patient friendships in which these things are promoted. Again, I, I should hesitate to give examples because we don't want to, you know, check boxes here. But it's an illustration of the many different ways in which, in which we might do good to others. In fact, even the language of, of Scripture in Titus encourages that kind of thoughtfulness. It says, let our people also learn to maintain good works. And you can check out different renderings. Be careful. That is, be thoughtful, be considerate, or be devoted. Think, do, in a way that truly ministers to others in their needs. Good works in relation to others means that good works could be used to bring others to Christ. By observing Christian conduct, the world may see that your faith is real and that your God is real. By this, all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another, our Lord Jesus said. Doing good to others may open their eyes to see the love of Christ in action. A silent, steady example of integrity and goodness in the workplace, it could be working on the minds and consciences of unbelievers, and you might not even know about it. But their prejudices against Christians might be softened by these things. And they might be opened up to a positive view of Christianity when they see it on display in practical ways of doing good. We owe it to God, not as if we could ever pay Him back. And we owe it to the, this lost world to, to show to show good works that they can see, right? Isn't that the language Jesus uses? That they may see your good works. We are to show good works that others can see as well as tell the good news that others can hear. Good works in relation to others. Then finally, we have reasons in relation to ourselves. Catechism says that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. Now, we need to be clear that assurance of our salvation is not based on good works. If that were so, we could torment ourselves by asking, well, how good do these good works have to be, and how many uh, are they, and how consistent must they be? And the consequences of that approach, as if our good works is the basis or foundation for our assurance, is that it will either lead to doubt and uncertainty, in fact, that's probably a better result, for people who realize that their good works are always imperfect. They never rise to uh, God's uh, calling and our obligation. Or it could lead to pride. In the case of those who are deceived into thinking that their good works are good enough to earn their place in heaven and provide a foundation for their assurance. No, the ground of our assurance is Christ's work. And we never move beyond that. 
But that doesn't mean that good works have no role whatsoever in this question of assurance. Just as the reasons for doubt may be many, we may struggle with doubts and fears as a result of our immaturity in the faith and the many questions that we have and our struggle with sin and temptation. We might have doubts over our salvation because we, we, we lack clarity on justification. Or though we might give the right answers, it hasn't really so entered into our hearts. And so our assurance may be a growing thing. It's also possible that Christians may lack assurance because they're failing to show the kind of diligence that God calls them to. To add to their faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love, right? If you do these things, you shall never stumble. Therefore, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. And in that context, it joins the assurance of election with the evidence of a real serious Christian life that we are indeed endeavoring to walk in God's ways. Isn't that suggested even in the language of our Lord Jesus when he says, by this my Father is glorified if you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. No, he's not saying bear fruit and then you will achieve discipleship. He's connecting the assurance and the experience and the comfort of being a disciple of Jesus with the joy of knowing that by his grace we're learning to walk in his ways. We're learning to become like him. Not as the ground of our salvation, that's always Christ. But by growing in godliness, we also are assured of our faith by its fruits. Faith works. It works by love. And the alternative, clearly, even according to this Lord's Day, is a dead faith. A faith that is without gratitude. It's interesting, isn't it, that... Uh, the next question puts it this way. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant lives? In other words, if they're ungrateful, whatever they might profess, they really don't get it. The gospel hasn't moved and gripped them. And they're yet impenitent. And the evidence of that, they practice sin. And it describes that. It doesn't describe those who commit sin or fall into sin and repent but those who make sin a lifestyle, and it's described there. And those who practice sin will not enter into the kingdom of God because whatever they may profess, their faith is dead. It's without credibility because it doesn't influence their lives. And in that case, God's command is what? Start doing good works? No, in that case, God's call is to realize your guilt your helplessness, and repent and believe the gospel and then bring forth fruits that show the reality of a relationship with God grounded in Jesus Christ. Amen.